The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, in God's name? Don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out. And went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there. Dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to come before your throne, to meet with you, to worship your holy name. We ask, Lord, that now you would give us ears to hear. May you open your word to us, and may we hear your voice speaking to us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified, and you alone. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Mark. And what we have today, this passage in Mark 5, 1 to 20, is part of what would be called a triptych. Now, I know some of you get very excited about new words for Scrabble and words for friends, 
you know, and you can obviously use this and impress people. Even if you don't know what the definition is, I guarantee you've seen one of these before. There's actually one in our foyer. A triptych can be used in many number of different ways. Often it's referred to a piece of art that has three separate panels all connected by a similar theme. So here it's actually one shot in three panels. Oftentimes you'll find these in uh, religious history, uh, like the incarnation of Jesus Christ, panels that tell different parts of the story, but they're all connected. It's not limited just to pieces of graphic art. It can also refer to literature and other things. And what we have today is the middle panel of a triptych all referring to Jesus's power. Particularly what you see is that these things refer to Jesus's power that brings peace. If you were alert, all the songs this morning have been about Jesus's power, and they've all been about Jesus's power bringing peace in different ways. But what we have in the Gospel of Mark Last week, Tim covered the beginning of this where it showed Jesus' power to bring peace over nature. This week, we have Jesus' power to bring peace over evil and those afflicted by evil. And then next week, we're going to see Jesus' power that brings peace over illness. I want to walk through our passage, and I'll read again the first five verses. And what we see in the opening here is both the reality of evil and the way evil works. Verses 1 to 5 again. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, this whole passage is rather interesting. First, Jesus enters a predominantly Gentile Roman area. Romans, you know, occupied everything, but this was a particular area of Roman activity and Gentiles. And it's fascinating that Jesus being a Jew, because good Jews didn't cross the water that he just crossed entering into Gentile area. It's fascinating that he goes there, but because he does go across the lake into this Gentile territory, we are granted what in the Bible is the longest account of an exorcism there is. And I know the first thing that may be on your mind is you're saying, really? Spiritual evil forces you don't really believe that, do you? Yes, I do. And, and what I'd say, I'm not going to talk long about this, but I think only somebody who's truly atheist and truly materialistic only, meaning that all there is is matter in front of you and there's no spiritual, they're the only one who can reasonably say there's no such thing as spiritual evil. If you believe that there's spiritual good in the world, God, angels, it's very reasonable to also believe there is spiritual evil. And what this whole passage shows is that there is a reality of spiritual evil in this world. And there's a lot of things that we can't go into today that are just fascinating about this, but what the Bible does here, and part of why I even bring this up, 
is that sometimes it's not only skeptics, but Christians want to say, well, okay, what's going on with this man is he's just sick. You know, and it may not be a physical illness, but it's a mental illness. And, and what you need to understand is the Bible regularly and clearly distinguishes between sickness and demonic. In our very next passage, we're going to see two people, one a girl who dies because of a sickness and a woman who's been sick for years, both of whom Jesus' power comes to bring peace in their life, and never is there any hint that they are afflicted by demonic forces like the man in our passage today is. The Bible regularly and clearly distinguishes between spiritual evil and sickness. And it's not just that, because sometimes people are like, and this is where well-meaning Christians will say, well, I guess maybe it's just a mental illness of some kind. And if you had a good psychiatrist, they could have diagnosed this. No, because the Bible doesn't just differentiate between demonic spiritual oppression and sickness. It also actually nuances mental illness in different ways. And if you read your King James Bible, they'll bring this out in some of the way they translate certain passages. But the Bible is much more complex than we give it credit for. So don't think that this is just some case of you can dismiss spiritual evil. This account is meant to tell us it's a reality in the world today And it actually has power over people's lives in different ways. So it's real, but also this passage tells us a little bit about how evil works. And if you think about it, in one sense, this man, I'll just refer to him as Legion, is the strongest and most free man in the entire area. He's the strongest. People have tried to bind him numerous times with chains. And he can regularly break those chains apart. He is the strongest. He is the unbindable one. People cannot gain control over him, even though they've tried numerous times. And so in one sense, this guy is like a superman among all the people living there. And in one sense, he is the most free because no one can contain him. But what the passage also shows is he's totally enslaved. Because what you read in this passage is how Legion is isolated from community. And and I, I won't go down this too much, but if you can just put yourself in either his shoes for a moment, or maybe even think about his family's shoes. This is the young man gone crazy, the black sheep of the family the one who's an embarrassment to everyone, and not just the family who is now defined by this man, the whole countryside. I, I have to believe that at some level, he was the lore of children's ghost stories at night as they're sitting around a fire and they're scaring each other in the darkness, and maybe you even hear Legion howling in the distance. I wonder whether sometimes an exasperated parent used Legion as a threat against their children. Stop all that racket or I'm going to sick legion on you. And so here is a man who is completely isolated from community. He's crying out with no consolation. He's ripping his flesh apart, lacerating it with stones. He's residing among the dead. 
That's his companions, those who no longer live. So actually, Legion is the most bound man. And the reason I point this out is because that's how evil works in our lives. You see, evil will regularly promise good things, life, strength, comfort, hope, whatever. But it causes you to lose yourself to the evil. Legion is no longer a man. He has lost himself. And you read this passage, and it's really fascinating how the demons are front and center throughout. It's like he has stepped in. Sometimes he'll come forward, but he is lost to the evil. And the reason I point that out is because sometimes Christians say this, well, at least I'm not possessed like that guy. And thankfully, I don't know anyone possessed like that guy. And true, in our country, largely, you don't see that. Talk to some missionaries, you see it. But even if you don't see someone possessed by evil, the Bible says don't get too smug thinking this doesn't apply to you. Because even Paul in the book of Ephesians says this, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let a root of bitterness creep up and grow in your life. And why should you not let the sun go down on your anger? And why should you not let bitterness harbor in your heart? It's because Paul then connects it to you are now opening yourself up to demonic, evil forces that are looking to oppress you. That's why confession is such a good thing. You're angry with somebody? You're doing them no harm. You're hurting yourself and you're opening yourself up to the influence of evil. You're letting bitterness grow in your heart, you are opening yourself to evil forces, Paul says. So don't think that just because you're not technically possessed, and know this, the Greek, it never uses the word possessed. That's something we insert in there in English. The Greek simply says this man was demonized. He was under the influence, oppressed by demonic activity. But Paul says you can be too, even as a Christian. Just harbor anger, harbor bitterness. You can be oppressed just like he was. Maybe not possessed, but absolutely oppressed and opening yourself up in ways that you shouldn't. And we could trail this out further. You know, bitterness, it gives you hope and life and strength and comfort in different ways because you feel justified to hate this person you think you're harming them. You think you're self-righteous. You're think, I mean, all kinds of things. And what's happening is you're becoming a slave to the evil. It is taking over. This is a real warning to all of us. And this man, Legion, is just a representative of all humanity who is under the power of evil forces in different ways. Okay, that's how this begins So many today, you could say it this way, are controlled by a legion of cravings, captivations, and destructive influences due to sin. Sin promises you the world, and yet it will totally enslave you. We need this as the church. We need this as the people of God to know about Jesus' power to set free and bring peace. This passage continues. We're going to get into the confrontation of Jesus with the demons and the pigs. Verses 6 to 13, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. 
He shouted at the top of his voice. Now imagine this. You've just crossed, and I, I, I have to imagine the disciples are wondering, why in the world are we going across the body of water in the first place? No good Jew goes over there. That's, that's unclean territory. That's forbidden land. There's evil people, evil things over there. And Jesus takes his disciples across. The disciples have to be thinking, what's up? And then the first thing that happens when they step foot off the boat is this Freddy Krueger type person runs at them, screaming at the top of his lungs. He's cut up, gashed, looks like a, I don't know what, something really bad. (laughs) Their eyes have to be popping out of their head, and they have to at some level probably be kind of getting behind Jesus saying, okay. This man runs, screams, and I won't scream, what do you want with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? I think this is one of the creepiest verses in the Bible as it goes from singular to plural here. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Okay, a couple of things of background here. A Roman legion was more than 6,000 men. They were 6,000 foot soldiers, upwards of 1,200 cavalry, and then all kinds of support troops. So we know a Roman legion is at least 6,000. I don't think this is, this is saying that the man had exactly 6,000 demons in him. If he did, there were three demons per pig. So um, it, what we know, there's a whole lot of demonic activity going on with this man. The point, though, is that there is no question in this text over who is sovereign and who is in control. There's no doubt whatsoever. You'll see three times the demons beg. They beg Jesus, don't torture us. They beg him not to be sent out of the area, which is fascinating because there's this, uh, scholars talk about how demons actually like to reside in certain areas. We don't have time for that. And they beg Jesus to be allowed to enter the pig. Give us permission to go in there. They can't do anything without Jesus' permission. And they beg on three different occasions, three different ways. They know who's in charge. You know, our friends, they may deny the lordship and power of Jesus Christ. The demonic world knows, and the Bible tells us one day every man and woman will bow before acknowledging his lordship. He is the king, the sovereign. The demons know that. Now, let's talk about the piggies, because this bothers Christians. And I know, you know, I said first hour, it's really tempting to make certain jokes to lighten the mood about the pigs. We can talk about how Jesus invented deviled ham, or we can talk about how the pigs went to hog heaven, you know, things like that. You know, I even saw a picture this week where somebody offered the alternate happy ending of the story, where, you know, the pigs are all snorkeling. And look how cute they are. You know, okay. Oh, uh, uh, I know. <laughs> All right. 
we get really upset about the pigs dying. First thing about the pigs. Jesus is the sovereign king over the entire world. And so, whether we like it or not, he has absolute divine right to do whatever he wants with anyone and anything. You are not your own, you are his. Your stuff is not your own, it's his. He allows us to steward it in different ways. The animals of creation are not their own, they are his. And so Jesus, as the king over all of creation, can do whatever he wants. That's the first thing. But now let me give you another perspective that I think Jesus himself gives us from this passage. Not just about his power as king, but also about his compassion as king. The first thing is this. Very clearly, Jesus demonstrates that the deliverance of one man's soul is worth more than a monetary fortune of 2,000 pigs, because this was a fortune in terms of dollars. One man's soul is worth far more than 2,000 pigs. Jesus was not displaying a lack of compassion. He was actually exercising proper compassion. You see, it was Jesus' compassion that drove him to allow the demons their request, which destroyed the pigs for the sake of one individual soul. This passage shows us how much a human life is worth. It's only in a culture of death where human life is denigrated and pigs are held up as more important. The second thing Jesus does is he gives a real gift to this man. Because if this man ever doubted the completed work of Jesus in his life, the destruction of the pigs was a perpetual reminder to him of the permanence of Jesus' work. They're done and they're gone. It was a reminder to the community. And once again, this is not psychiatric evaluation stuff here. This is evil spiritual evil going into, out of one individual, into the pigs, then the pigs being destroyed. The reality of spiritual evil, but the destruction of spiritual evil. It's a reminder always to this man of God's grace to him. And here's the last thing that's just an application to us. When Jesus defeats evil in our own lives, don't think that we can tell him how to do it or exactly what to do. He's more committed to you than you are to your holiness. And if he wants to root out something in your life, whether it be an addiction, whether it be lust, whether it be lying or stealing, whether it be flirting inappropriately, whether it be some kind of deception, it doesn't matter. He can do that however he wants. He can do it the easy way and just remove it from your life. He can do it the hard way where it gets revealed to everyone around you. And the point of this is don't think we can tell Jesus how he needs to work in our lives. He's the king. And he is committed to his power destroying evil and bringing peace. And so once this happened in our story, it's amazing. All the people are so enamored with Jesus, they bring everyone from the countryside for him to heal them, to you know, show his power in their lives. Not so much. 
we read just the opposite as this text continues in verses 14 to 17. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. It wasn't the destruction of the pigs that scared them. It was Jesus' power over this man that scared them to death. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus, leave. I don't think they asked Jesus to leave just because a financial fortune has been lost. I believe they are asking Jesus to leave because they see legions sitting there. The man of ghost stories and legends, the man that no one can contain, and he is whole and restored and at peace, and they cannot comprehend a power that can do such a thing. They had tried to exert power over him to no avail. What is this power that's come amongst us? And there's also an aspect of this text that's worth exploring. I can only give you some parameters and encourage you to explore this further on your own. But know this. I mentioned that the good disciples would have thought, why in the world are we going over to this Gentile land? There are many reasons for that. It's it's a Roman hot seat. And Romans were considered by good Jews as unclean pigs deserving death, okay? I'm not advocating that's a good view to hold, but the Jews held that the Romans are unclean pigs who deserve death. And what's going to happen is when Messiah comes, Messiah is going to destroy the unclean pigs. Now, it's very telling that Jesus chooses to leave Jewish area, cross the body of water, enter into a Roman area, with a man who encompasses everything the Jews hate about the Romans. The legion of armies, the oppression, everything this man represents. And what a good Jew would have thought, the Messiah is going to go and destroy that with the sword. And what does Jesus do? He heals with His power, and it brings love and grace and peace to this foreigner. You see, the picture of the man sitting at Jesus' feet, fully restored and at peace, is not just about the amazing power of Jesus. It's about the way in which Jesus has come to defeat evil, fully represented by the cross. Not countering hate and violence with hate and violence, but countering it by taking all hate and violence and sin into his own life, so that we can be forgiven. And what's quite amazing to me, remember the things I said that characterize Legion as a bound man? That's exactly what happens to Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Legion and Jesus switch seats. Because at the end of Mark, here's what you're going to see about Jesus. He becomes completely isolated from community. The closest people around him desert him. His disciples forsake him. And even his heavenly Father turns his face away from him as he's on the cross, and Jesus enters utter isolation. You know from the passion narratives, Jesus' flesh is lacerated, torn apart, just like Legion's was. 
Just as Legion cried out with no consolation, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's silence. And then there's darkness that covered the whole land. And just as Legion lived with the dead, Jesus entered the place of the dead and remained under the power of death for a period of time. Why? To defeat evil, to pay for our sins, and to let His power be made perfect in love in our lives so that evil is wiped out and His power resides and His peace comes into our lives. So that, you know, who are we? We are adopted, fully loved children of His heavenly Father. Maybe today you're here and you feel like your sin, maybe it's some sin from the past, maybe it's something recently, or maybe it's patterns of addictive behavior. You feel that you have descended so low because of your sin that you are beyond help. Sin is broken. It has broken relationships. It's caused chaos in your life. It's threatening to break relationships. This passage teaches us very clearly, no matter how evil you have been or currently are, Jesus can heal you. He can forgive you. He's the one who can make you whole. And He's the one who can grant you true peace. My friends, He can deliver you from anything if you will come to Him. He can deliver you from a miserable past. He can deliver you from present addictive sin. And hear this, there is no life that sin or evil forces or Satan himself has ruined so badly that God's power cannot restore it because His power overcomes all things. The only thing here that will keep you from experiencing the power and the peace of Jesus Christ in your life is if you like the community, send Him away. At the end of the passage, it says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with Him, and Jesus did not let him. And, and doesn't this seem odd? Because throughout our story, we have the demons beg three separate times, and Jesus says, yes, yes, yes. We have the people from all the countryside come out and beg, leave us. And Jesus says, okay, yes. And then, of all people that you would think who would get a yes, is this brand new disciple, and he says, Jesus, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no. What in the world? It's because Jesus had something better for this man. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. Don't miss this. Legion is reconciled to his family. God's power can restore any broken relationship. The, the, the mother and the father... You know, thinking about their son who has become the laughingstock and the nuisance and the horror of the entire countryside is made whole. 
and he's reconciled to them. Jesus has something better. And he also then says, be reconciled to your family and then go and tell what I've done for you. You see, and that's what this passage ends with. That's our role too. And I said first hour, the Bible says not everyone has the gift of evangelism. That is a gift. Or some people just have this spiritual of, you know, empowering by God. It's a giftedness to evangelize. But everyone in the church of Jesus Christ is called to witness to what God has done for them. All it is is telling other people what God has done for you. And you know what's amazing about this? Two chapters later, I think I have that passage too, Jesus comes back to this exact same place, and all the people from the Decapolis come out and welcome him. You know why? Because one man, Legion, went out and told people what God did for them, did for him. And the people now are receptive to Jesus coming back. Ray Stedman was the pastor of Peninsula Bible Church, the church in Palo Alto, California. And he was preaching through a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and he came to this passage, which is a difficult passage. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. When Ray came to that point, he stopped and he said, I want to do something I've never done before. How many of you here today were saved out of one of those characteristics? Stand right now. Yeah, it got really quiet. He said, no one even wanted to look at their neighbor in fear of giving something away. And after he said what seemed like an eternity, an 86-year-old woman sitting towards the back stood up and said, I was saved out of one of those. And that led to hundreds of people then standing up. There's a young man from Stanford University visiting Peninsula Bible Church that day. And when he saw hundreds of people around him standing up saying, I used to be an adulterer. I used to be a drunkard. I used to be a swindler. I used to be... He broke down in tears. And he said, these are my kind of people because I know what I've done. He came to faith in Jesus Christ that day. After finishing Stanford, he went to seminary and then became a person serving Christ in all kinds of ways. And why did that happen? It was because the church at PBC that day was willing to witness and testify, this is what God has done in my life. You see, the church is not the community of the perfect. You know me, that's not the case. I know you, that's not the case. (laughs) We are the church filled with sinful individuals, drunkards, swindlers, adulterers, prostitutes, the addicted, the enslaved. That's us. 
And the only reason we're here today is because the power of Jesus Christ that defeated evil and brings us peace. Jesus is the one who sets free. He set free the people in Corinth from these things. He set free Legion, the demoniac. He sets all of his children free. I'll end by saying one way you could summarize this story is that there's no place Jesus will not go. No Jew would have expected him to go across to the garrisons. There's nowhere he won't go. There's no slum into which he won't enter. There's no hellhole that he's afraid of. There's nowhere that you can go that he doesn't go with you into a hostile workplace, into a family reunion where people make fun of you for your faith. There's nowhere he will not go. There's no one he is not willing to help. And there is no power that he cannot overcome. Because great is our Lord, and his power brings peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the mighty one. You are the king above all kings, the Lord of all lords. You are the sovereign one. And we thank you for how you've delivered us. May we not forget where we come from. May we be quick to tell others about what you've done for us. Lord, it's not about our goodness. It's about you. And we thank you for choosing to lay down your life, to defeat hell and sin and darkness and death itself so that we could be at peace with your heavenly Father. Jesus, we give to you our tithes and our offerings now. We sing this last song of your greatness. Lord, asking that your word and the gospel would go far and wide, that many others would know of how wonderful you are. In your name we pray. Amen.